we will not succeed unless we are prepared to do more. We will not succeed unless we are prepared to compete. Uh, and we will not do we will not do more achieve our objectives unless we are prepared to work together potentially in new formats um, that that allow us to to secure our strategic and uh, economic objectives. And I think if we can do that, and there's a specifically strong role here, I think, for Britain and Japan being two influential island nations um, on on either flank of Eurasia, central, respectively, I think, to the Euro-Atlantic and the Indo-Pacific worlds, um, then if we can do that, there is, a, uh, I think, a, a very prosperous future ahead of us, despite the fact that we will have to um, o- overcome a number of challenges uh, in the years ahead. Welcome back. You're listening to the Real Issues, Real Voices, Real Japan podcast by Japan Forward. Here at Japan Forward, we bring to our audience issues that are of real importance in and about Japan from the perspective and context of people inside of Japan, as expressed or captured by them who truly understand the nuances of culture, issues, and current events. In today's session, we spoke with Council on Geostrategies co-founder and director of research, Mr. James Rogers, and associate fellow, Dr. Philip Shetler-Jones. The Council on Geostrategy recently celebrated their first birthday, and we invited them to talk about UK-Japan relations. Thank you to all our listeners and followers for joining us again for our weekly Twitter space. Uh, we have um, people join the live conversation um, they drop in, they join in. Um, we appreciate it very much. But before we get started, let's introduce ourselves. So for anybody unfamiliar unfamiliar with us, we started Japan Forward in 2017 with the goal to reach global audiences, sharing stories, opinions, and editorial content from Japan. Our mission shared by our supporters and followers is to raise awareness of the Japanese spirit, culture, and tradition. And now let's introduce some of our editorial staff who are in this Twitter Spaces call today. So maybe we can start with Susan. Uh, nice to meet you. I'm Susan Komori. I'm the senior editor at Japan Forward, and I'm the one that uh, most frequently deals directly with Philip uh, and uh, uh, through uh, Naito-san, also with Hayakawa-san who seems to also deal with all of us quite directly. That's really wonderful. Uh, but we're so pleased to have been introduced to you, uh, Philip and James, by Hayakawa-san last year. Uh, and I've been monitoring your growth and your your uh, institute has just really uh, blossomed, I think. And the, the research that you've put online has been terrific. Uh, we are so pleased to carry your articles and um, hope that you will continue with us on that. But congratulations on your first year. Uh, you have exploded uh, with content in a year and enriched uh, certainly the uh, European and Japan connection on that regard. Thanks, Susan. Now we have Ariel. Hi, uh, my name is Ariel Buzetto. I'm a reporter with Japan Forward and I have been a reporter since 2018. Um, I always follow the articles that uh, you've published on our website um, and I really look forward to working with you in the future. And lastly me, I'm Galileo, originally from Australia, Sydney, moved to Japan about 14, 15 years ago now and worked with Japan Forward since 20, I guess 2017, when we first um, were starting. I work on 
I'm working on a lot of things, but mainly right now, um, a lot of the stuff on the website and like marketing and also some of the operations. Okay, so um, I'll, so I'll be the host slash moderator for today and have the pleasure to introduce our guests. Um, so firstly, we have a um, longtime contributor to Japan Forward, Dr. Hayakawa. She is actually the person who introduced the Council of Geostrategy to us. So she will talk about this later. And um, it's, nice to have you, it's nice to have you with us today, Dr. Hayakawa. But thank you for having me today. All right. And then the Council of Geostrategy, um, who is a recent contributor with us, they first published um, with us last year in May. Uh, the Council of Geostrategy is an independent non-profit organization situated in the heart of Westminster. The Council of Geostrategy focuses on an international environment increasingly defined by geopolitical competition and the environmental crisis. Founded in 2021, so that was last year, and they celebrate their one-year birthday, the Council of Geostrategy aims to promote a strong Britain, working closely with its allies and partners to uphold an open international order for a more secure and prosperous future. Focus areas are geopolitics, environmental security, as well as ways to strengthen the scientific, technological and industrial base and commercial prowess of the United Kingdom and other free and open countries. So today we have Dr. Philip Shuttler-Jones and Mr. James Rogers joining us. Nice to have you guys. Very good. All right. So I guess we can start with Dr. Hayakawa um, and maybe give a brief background on how, how you met the Council of Geostrategy. Yes, uh, thank you, Galileo-san. Yes, uh, in 2017, I was privileged to be invited twice to a special meeting of the Abe administration's parliament member and had the opportunity to connect maritime security to the Indo-Pacific concept. I have covered the US and Australia for last 35 years. I, I forgot how old I was, but I wanted to find out what the discussion was like in Europe. At that time, the UK was rocked by Brexit, Huawei was welcomed, and there were loud voices telling people not to go beyond Suez East. I was surprised, impressed, and encouraged by the young, to my eyes very young, British gentleman, that is uh, James Rogers, John Hemmings and Philip Shetler Jones, uh, who were speaking out there. They were advocating Global Britain, quasi Japan British Alliance, and the elimination of Chinese influence. I'm glad that James has created a new think tank in the vein and continues to move the UK and the world forward. The visit of the aircraft carrier Queen Elizabeth to the Indo-Pacific last year and the British government's decision yesterday to grant British citizenship to the people of Chagos Island, which is important Indo-Pacific security location, are also in line with Council of Geostrategies and its colleagues have created. Let me congratulate one year anniversary. Thank you. Yes. So yes. Thank you for that. Um, it's very interesting how we you met them and also introduced us to uh, introduce them to us. Uh, we've published about four of their pieces, and they're quite unique in in sense that 
um, not other people have written or co- co- copied uh, or covered the topics that they have. So it's it's very good that we 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 are able to publish them. Um, so on that note, I just want to say thank you, uh, congratulations on your first anniversary um, to the Council of Years strategy. And I want maybe if you can share uh, why it was a time I think um, share like what what, ha- what has happened in in the year. Thank you, thank you so much for those kind remarks and uh, and for congratulating us in such a way. Um, I guess well, we we thought of establishing a new organisation, a new think tank in London, um, just over a year ago now, um, because we thought there was a good opportunity in the aftermath of Brexit to um, contribute to the government's thinking. Um, which, of course, is constantly evolving about Britain's role in the world, and not just Britain's role, but also, more importantly, I think, because in Britain we often talk about Britain's role, but we often fail to think about Britain's interests. Um, So what we wanted to do was to think about how the evolving um, geostrategic environment was going to affect those interests and what's affecting those interests and how um, Britain should respond while also keeping true to its um, form as a democracy and its intentions, um, which, of course, are to promote an increasingly open and prosperous uh, international order. So we thought and saw growing threats on the horizon. Of course, Russia is one of those, and that's become increasingly acute and direct in the same way that the government here has um, declared it as a threat but also increasingly uh, China, um, and particularly, of course, China under the control of the Chinese Communist Party, which has a very different set of interests uh, to those of our own or other free and open countries, wherever they may be, whether they be in the Euro-Atlantic or the Indo-Pacific regions. So we wanted to create this organization, but we also realized simultaneously that while geopolitical competition was intensifying, but there was also a very important uh, second dimension, which was increasingly intersecting with geopolitics. And that is, of course, environmental security and the broader um, climate crisis. So we thought that by merging those two things together, um, that we would be in an ideal space to gain uh, traction, not only within the UK itself, but also, I think, uh, internationally. And then, of course, on top of that, in the context of Brexit and uh, the increasingly global perspective of the UK, um, we also thought it would be important to think about Britain's uh, interests and um, how we can strengthen uh, the UK in this increasingly contested um, world where where there are many different uh, crises emerging simultaneously. Uh, and therefore, we try to merge those three elements together, as you kindly put in your introductions, um, to 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 provide responses on a case by case basis to specific issues, and to do so in a way that promotes uh, new geostrategic thinking for this more uh, competitive age. Now, we launched ourselves publicly just before the government here. Uh, outlined a week before, in fact, the government outlined the integrated review um, and two weeks before the publication of the Defence Command paper, which was the military or strategic component of that integrated review. And since then, we've been, um, I hope, growing and maturing uh, and sort of bedding into the London think tank space. 
um, uh, ever since. So we've undertaken a number of different research projects looking at things as different as uh, what we've called discursive statecraft, which is sort of international shaping operations undertaken by particular countries with a focus not only on uh, Britain's competitors in the form of Russia and China, but also um, its allies and partners, uh, the United States, uh, Germany and Europe, and of course, Japan in the uh, Indo-Pacific. We've also looked at things like critical minerals and uh, uh, rare earth supplies. Um, we've looked at the rise of China's uh, political and economic space and the Chinese Communist Party and what that means for the United Kingdom. And we've also looked at other dimensions, such as Russia's um, ongoing assault on Ukraine and Eastern Europe, and of course, the Euro-Atlantic space more generally, um, as well as matters pertaining to naval uh, security and uh, Britain's naval reach. So we, for example, did a paper on the uh, carrier strike group's deployment and what that would mean, um, how the Chinese Communist Party would position it, and, and so on and so forth. In addition, we've also tried to outreach to a number of different stakeholders, and we've had some, I think, successes in the past year. For example, in September, we um, we 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 um, hosted the British National Security Advisor for his inaugural speech mm -hmm. uh, the day after the announcement of the AUKUS um, pact between the United States, Britain, um, and Australia. And then later on in the year, we then hosted our first conference at Wilton Park, which is the Foreign Office's uh, international conferencing venue in, in Sussex. And there we hosted the first, the then first Sea Lord, who is now, of course, the chief of the uh, defence um, staff uh, for a conference looking at naval diplomacy. So over the last year, I think we have um, grown rather rapidly and we've made our presence felt on the on the both the London and I hope also the international think tank scene. And um, I hope over the course of the next year that we'll be doing um, much of the same, the same to continue to develop uh, and evolve in pursuit of our mission and objectives, and hopefully to make Britain, as well as other free and open nations, um, more united, stronger and uh, greener. Okay, thank you for that. Um, so yeah, last year, uh, there's an article published, um, a new type of Britain-Japan alliance, and it was trending on our webpage for uh, for a couple of weeks or so, and and this was the first pub. This was the first article um, published by the Council of Geostrategy on Japan Forward. So I'd like to ask, what do we think about um, why this new type of alliance between the UK and Japan? Um, how and how has it become so important today? What does it say about the state of world affairs? Well. Um this is Philip. Thank you very much for inviting me on um, to talk about this quasi-alliance uh, between the UK and Japan that I've been interested in for some time. I started a blog about it some years back, in 2013, actually, uh, which was a year or two after there was a the speech by the then ambassador of Japan in uh, the UK who, who used this expression, new type of alliance. Um, I think it says something quite revealing about geopolitics today, um, especially in the way this, this quasi-alliance has come to life and come to wider attention in the way that it has. So if we go back to that time, I think that was a moment when we were a decade on from the 9-11 attacks. Countries like the UK and Japan, who have a global outlook on their security strategy, 
started to look beyond the global war on terror and think about challenges that were coming towards them. Um, these were rising China and China's influence, a flattening uh, world in the sense that uh, our main ally, America, would have more rivals uh, and uh, stronger rivals in, in, in terms of the, the sort of interests that we share that, that form the basis of our alliances. And consequently, a need for uh, powers of the size of Japan and Britain to turn our common interests into more practical cooperation. Of course, you know, everybody, especially in Japan, I sometimes think people in Japan have more awareness of the Anglo-Japan alliance of a century ago than, than we do in the UK. Um, and, and we saw that, I think, when the carrier strike group visited. There was a lot in the Japanese press about the, the old alliance that we had uh, starting in 1902. So the, the idea that of the UK and Japan as allies is not totally alien, um, but I would also say this is not an exercise in nostalgia in any way. The reasons for the present-day quasi-alliance are entirely about the present challenges and, and future challenges that we both face. I think those interests that we share are defined by our situation. Our economies rely heavily on open trade and commerce. Our societies demand the values of individual freedom and representative democracy are defended against interference. And this is, uh, you could say, hardly unique. But one one thing we share, it turns out, is is less common than that, which is that both of our countries have a, a habit of thinking beyond our immediate interests and a sense of wider um, universal values and the indivisibility of security principles across the world. But a good example of that just uh, happened recently in the response to the crisis between uh, Russia and Ukraine where at the Munich Security Conference, when the Japanese foreign minister spoke and the British prime minister and foreign minister spoke, they were the, the strongest voices really talking about the links between what's happening today in Europe and, and, and what's happening in Indo-Pacific or particularly uh, Asian security, East Asian security. And they emphasize this point about the indivisibility of our security principles. Not every country sees it that way, uh, even countries of also rising influence. Each of those um, interests and values is being challenged today. That's what, that's what this alliance also says about what's happening. There's rising coercion and bullying by revisionist powers, mm. both threatening free trade, but also the ability of countries to live as they choose and freely choose their course in foreign policy. Mm -hmm. And I think the UK and Japan both have a strong sense that we won't allow that to happen. And that's the real basis of the closer relations that we're building. Um, in that decade since um, 2012, when we had our first security cooperation agreement uh, signed, we've restored links, particularly between our, all our armed forces. All our armed forces are now exercising regularly together, uh, particularly the Navy, for obvious reasons. But I, I also see something now, just a, a closing point, uh, a different kind of cooperation, perhaps moving more to the center of the relationship. And this was the one that um, I wrote about and you, you kindly republished about uh, deeper British-Japanese intelligence cooperation. Mm, yes. Which we published in the middle of January. 
And, and that is really a reflection of the way that uh, cooperation in defense technology associated with closer cooperation in intelligence uh, is is becoming more important because the the requirements we all have for equipping ourselves with a means to de- to defend our interests uh, and our values is is getting steeper and, and uh, rather than trying to do it all alone we are finding other partners to work with and and I think this goes hand in hand with closer intelligence cooperation because partly you need to protect the information that is uh, essential to advanced technology and research but also when you share more intelligence and 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 processes of intelligence um you you share the strategic assessments that, that that help you form an accurate but common picture of the developments and threats that um that shape the rest of your policy so i i think this year might see an increase in that we've already seen of joint uh, development of the propulsion systems in the future generation fighter aircraft that comes on top of joint development of air-to-air missile guidance systems and even earlier on there was uh, initial uh, joint development on um, suits for protection against chemical and biological warfare so i think that this is a, a new trend in the relationship which which i'll be um, trying to follow more closely this year thank you Thank you for that. Um, just a follow-up question, and I think I, um, maybe a comment from both of you is that as we see these trends have, um, particularly the one with the Russia and Ukraine um, issue going on, and maybe similar um, similar trends, how similar issues, world issues that will have effects effect on global economy. I, I wonder what you think about where will the UK and Japan relations play a role um, going forward? Um, maybe if I go first on that one and then Philip will respond in with his more extensive expertise on this issue. But um, I think that um, the, the 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 UK perception of Japan is a very um, is very strong at the moment, and Japan has been uh, prioritised as um, as Philip says a kind of quasi ally, um, particularly in the context of Britain's Indo Pacific tilt that was outlined in the government's uh, the British government's uh, integrated review last year. Um, the idea the idea being that um, two island countries on either sides either side of Eurasia, um, one in the Euro-Atlantic and one in the Indo-Pacific, um, have very similar, as Philip said earlier, um, interests in how the world should be and how we should resist the, um, the sort of uh, intentions and, and policies of the revisionist powers, many of which are authoritarian and have very different um, ambitions and interests to those of our own. Um, and in so doing, um, because Britain wants to be the most um, active European uh, country in the Indo-Pacific by 2030, um, Japan makes for a very good um, ally for the UK or partner for the UK going forward. And um, now what the UK is going to try and do, I think, over the coming years, despite the that um, Russia is putting immense pressure on the Euro-Atlantic order is also simultaneously to reach out to the Indo-Pacific region um, to key allies and partners in that region, like the United States, Australia, and of course, uh, Japan, as well as others, 
um, but um, but to, to build closer relationships with those countries and to demonstrate um, a persistent commitment to the security of the Indo-Pacific region. And I think there's a kind of important point to make that we, we've tried to make um, as a think tank, and that is that um, you can't think anymore of the Euro-Atlantic and the Indo-Pacific as separate strategic theatres or spaces. Well, of course you can, but simultaneously, because of the the, 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 the the nature of the challenges that are emerging, um, the two spaces are increasingly integrated to the extent that they're folding into one another. So you can't think about security in the Indo-Pacific if you don't also think about security in the Euro-Atlantic and vice versa. And an important task, I think, for organizations such as ours and also others, and whether they're in Japan or others in the US, uh, the UK and Australia and so on, is to try and um, stimulate this kind of, of thinking so that together we can try and um, maintain this open international order that we are committed to. And through so doing, that requires us to 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 understand that, that there are deep and growing connections between the Euro-Atlantic and the Indo-Pacific spaces. So in that context, I think the, the Japan-UK relationship is is going to be critical to draw together two of the world's most influential countries and largest uh, economies um, to, to, to power up not only that thinking, but also to generate the security that is necessary to secure the interests of the democracies in the 21st century. Okay, thank you. How about you, Dr. Philip? Dr. Philip. Mm, thank you. Yeah, I agree with a lot of um, what James has, has said. Um, the UK and Japan have identified each other as as their most important security partners in Asia and Europe, respectively, um, for for almost a decade now. And I think you've really seen the proof of that in the way that Japan has really stood out among our, our Asian partners and friends uh, in quickly joining up um, the sanctions regime on on Russia recently. And you know, only there are only two or three other countries who've who've been in a position to do that: Australia, Singapore, South Korea started to join at some level. But I think it's what's as important as what Japan has done is the the way that they've done it, the way they've framed that. They've made the case very strongly. This this uh, government of Mr. Kishida has made the case very strongly about this, it's not a local principle, it's a global principle. And I think that that's, as James said, the thing that really connects us. It's almost impossible to think of two countries, really, who are in a position to champion this idea that what happens in European security and Asian security is fundamentally linked in a way that if you want to succeed in either either geography, um, you can't do it in isolation from the other. Uh, I think other countries, for their own reasons, have have a different outlook, where they they do have reasons to to cr- create a sort of intellectual or operational separation. And I think that's just uh, something that makes us different. Um, the- this this is Susan here, uh, Philip. Uh, one of the things that I've heard since I've been involved with uh, uh, Japan and. Uh, British Affairs, uh, my husband and I were based in the UK a couple decades ago. Uh, The two are both island nations, and so they also share that in common. And uh, certainly they're both naval countries, and 
So they share a long history, not only of uh, uh, on and off naval alliances, but um, uh, also a naval outlook. And I wonder if that plays a role in their um, in how in the affinity that the two feel for each other in terms of uh, rounding out the the attention to democracy on both ends of the globe, because they seem to be. Uh, the, Uni- the United Kingdom and the uh, or British, however you prefer to call it, uh, and Japanese sides seem to uh, like be bringing uh, together an element of the world that hasn't really been in the conversation as much uh, for a while. And certainly your articles have been bringing that to the attention of the readers that we have. Um, but there's a, this long, long history, not only of the shared values, but also sort of um, the shared uh, perspective of, uh, you know, being island nations and naval countries. What what do you think on that, and uh, how much does that play a role? Yes, yeah, Susan, I, I agree. You're you're right. I think it plays quite a big role in our our instinctive outlook on the world, because as well as being both islands and and countries with a, a naval outlook, we have also got a history of influence and interests and and um extending far away from our island and uh, making very important connections economically and strategically with with countries far away and and i think that is rather an unusual characteristic for for a country uh, and i think it's one that is also particularly relevant today because of course all whether you're a landlocked country or not all of our economies and our politics are now much more dependent on maintaining that free open ocean as, as a, a platform for, for trade and interaction. And we all depend on it to a huge extent um, for all the supplies of basic commodities, energy, food, uh, and, and all the rest of it. So I think that 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 is a special characteristic. I would add just one more, which is we've also, I think, in our history, we've broken through the sort of a cultural, uh, even racial divide in some way that we we had an alliance at a time when there was a lot of racial tension and exclusion in the world uh, in the first decades of the, the 20th century. And despite, you know, the stereotypes that people have of the Victorian Edwardian uh, era, um, you know, the British Empire, even at a time near its its height of its power, made an alliance with uh, an Asian country. And Japan, as an Asian country, really um, succeeded in extending its its interest and its influence uh, all around the world and became, you know, in that time, you know, one of the leading countries. And, and, and you could see that in the way that Japan was a top-ranking country in the Versailles uh, agreements at the end of World War One. So I think that, yeah, that's a very unusual combination of being island nations, having a maritime outlook and having a, a position that gives you a, a sense of global concern and responsibility that, that, that adds up to this, this really genuinely global outlook on your, your international relations and your, your security. It also seems to me that for the last um, year or so, really since uh, coinciding not only with uh, your institute, your your think tank's uh, uh, emergence as a leading uh, thinking uh, policy outlet uh, of the United Kingdom, but also the United Kingdom's 
new outlook on uh, defense and involvement in the Pacific, and uh, at the same time, Brexit, uh, suddenly it feels as though the United Kingdom is very uh, out front and uh, ahead of uh, the Europeans uh, and not constrained by European relations, perhaps. Although, of course, we still value the, the European relations, uh, obviously, very much. Uh, but it seems like uh, the Britain relationship has is just also gone beyond the boundaries that it seemed to have been uh, pursuing more slowly in, in the decade or so preceding um, the new government and the emergence. Is that, is, that my, uh, is that just because I became aware of it because you're writing for us? Uh, and, uh, um, and if so, maybe you need to write more so more of our readers um, or share more of your articles so more of our readers become more aware of the outlook. But, uh, but that's my perception is that it's, it's become uh, deeper and a sort of more intense relationship in the last year or so. What do you maybe, say? Maybe, yeah. maybe if I, I come in there, I think you're right. I mean, the and it's good that you've you've made that observation. I think that the the government here um, has since, particularly since uh, 2020, has has determined that the UK in previous years, um, either because it was so involved in the Brexit process um, and was in a way having a debate with itself about where it wants to be and where it wants to go. But also before that, in the years that ran up to Brexit, that Britain was more of a kind of ambient power. It was in the background. It wasn't leading. It was just sort of moving along um, within the European Union and other institutions. And the changed strategic environment, the onset of this intensifying geopolitical competition, requires that the UK is much more up, up front and out there. Um, so in, in the last year or so, the UK really has tried, I think, to, to do that and to create new arrangements internationally that not necessarily uh, overcome, but rather complement the the established multilateral structures that we've been working in for the last sort of, uh, well, sometimes up to 70, 70 or so years and even longer, but particularly since the end of the Cold War, um, with new arrangements, whether that's, for example, the AUKUS grouping with the Americans and the Australians, um, or, um, for example, joining um, the ASEAN organization as a, as, a, as a dialogue partner, or even creating the trilateral grouping with Poland and Ukraine in Europe. Um, the idea being that Britain needs to be much more active in the world and its presence needs to be felt. Now, this in the UK has created um, a kind of, uh, uh, not a, kind of a, a, a situation whereby the opponents of this vision of a more active UK role um, sort of denounce it as boosterism. Um, but nonetheless, I think that the wind is in the sails of, of a more active UK that, that, that stands up for itself um, and, its, and the interests of its partners and allies, particularly other democracies in the 20th century. And we'll see the government um, pursuing that um, more actively. So, And it will be pursued both in the Indo-Pacific, whether that's the deployment of the, the carrier strike group or AUKUS or joining um, ASEAN, as I said, as a dialogue partner, or, of course, importantly, the, uh, the stronger relationship between Britain and, and Japan. But it will also be pursued in Europe in relation to Russia. And we've seen, for example, in recent weeks, the UK um, really stand up and step up in providing Ukraine with um, weapons to defend itself, to denounce Russia, um, and even, I would say, to 
um, sort of stimulate the other European countries in doing more, either by shaming them into doing that um, or, or simply by leading from, from the front. And I think this more active, globally oriented UK is, is, is a very good thing, not only for, of course, the UK-Japan relationship, but also for um, upholding a free and open uh, international order, whether that's in the Indo-Pacific or indeed in the Euro-Atlantic. Uh, certainly, I would agree with that. And of course, uh, Japan is not just interested in the Indo-Pacific, but uh, it is also threatened by Russia uh, in the Northern Territories, uh, where its islands have been occupied by Russia since the end of World War II. Uh, and Russia, of course, has just announced that it has broken off any talk of um, peace treaty uh, discussions. Uh, the Japan and the, the and Russia have never uh, engaged, had never concluded a peace treaty at the end of the war, uh, and so uh, there's still a lot of unsettled business there, as well as in the Arctic. I'm sure you're aware, um, mm. since I think you cover all of this uh, in your research. Um, but I wanted to just uh, before you before Ariel brings you back to the discussion about um, the European front, I wanted to ask about. Uh, the technology and intelligence sharing, which Philip mentioned, um, which seems to also be a, a place that is is definitely an important part of the future of the two. It's not just the naval carriers, but it's uh, sharing um, defense technology for uh, new fighter jets and um, uh, intelligence sharing where Japan is not part of the Five Eyes. So... Um, uh, where are we going with that? And what does Japan need to do, uh, in your view, uh, especially Philip, uh, to, to do a better job on that front? Well, thanks, Susan. I, I, was, um, I was listening very interested uh, to your um, last question with James as well. And um, I'll come back to a couple of additional points on that, if I may. But in response to your question, I mean, the 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 process you would go through when you look for a, a partner for this kind of very sensitive um, technology is is one where you, you only come up with a couple of answers, a very short list of countries kind of make the grade. Um, you know, you need to have uh, a very high level of trust with that country and, and that it will pursue over a long period a kind of steady course in its international affairs. Uh, because these these kind of investments in defense technology are very long term and expensive. Uh, so, the fact that we you know we have in common with Japan uh, an outlook where we 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 position our relationship with the United States in in a very similar way, uh, and we both I think still put a lot of faith in the continued um, strength and reliability of the United States. Uh, but at the same time, we recognize that. Um, we have to be in a position to provide more for ourselves and with our with our other friends as well. So I, I would say we are we are aligned with the United States, but we're not dependent on the United States. And I think that's that's probably a position that both Japan and the UK would like to be in. Um, and then, of course, there are few countries that have the level of scientific and technological uh, ability and achievement um, that Japan has. And and I suppose that what's what's happened recently in Japan since I think 2014, when the law changed on the co-development and export of of defense technologies and arms, is Japan has 
turned a corner in in a way in in discarding one of the one of the things which prevented Japan a- acting on this this kind of arm of defense and diplomacy if you like since since the World War II and the occupation period so uh, I think that that's that's really made Japan an obvious partner for us uh, what what Japan needs to do I think um, it's it's increasingly recognized in Japan and uh, we heard this when um, Mr. Kono Taro was was foreign minister when he spoke about Japan joining the five eyes as a sort of sixth eye that you know Japan ought to also look into its its um, position on intelligence and its its capabilities and in intelligence which historically it's always had uh, actually a very strong hand to play there was a, there's a very good book by uh, Dick Samuels from MIT about the history of Japan's intelligence which makes makes it very explicit that Japan was recognized as a kind of intelligence uh, superpower earlier in the 20th century and had extremely high standards and achievements at all levels of, in, of intelligence, strategic as well as tactical. So um, I think that that probably is, that train is already moving. There's already reform in Japanese intelligence. Um, there's already reform in the laws and the processes for defense technology. But uh, I suppose it needs investment as well, because just for the, the the point of scale that you need to make investments in in defense technology, um, you need to break down a lot of those barriers as well that have come in place um, in the tradition of the post-war period. And I think that's gradually happening. And And the more that we see this convergence on big issues like the issue we have with Russia now, the issues we're having with the People's Republic of China will will probably keep accelerating that. I think perhaps we need to make it a a, a more um, explicit centerpiece of our relationship because we we built up a good relationship in the last ten years. But it's when when people think about the UK Japan relationship in defence, the image you have very often is you know the carrier strike group and um, people doing joint exercises and uh, ministers having two plus two talks, which is all very necessary and very, very helpful. But um, I think that, you know, you also need to add to that uh, a sense of a longer term commitment and a deeper commitment, which I think we're probably ready for. Um, I just, I just wanted to add on what James was saying about the um, turn to the Indo-Pacific and the, and the tilt, which is the fact that the United Kingdom is very much helped by Japan in its uh, accession to the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership (CPTPP) is also quite a, a a useful example of what you're asking about, Susan. About you know how Britain has uh, really been galvanised in its thinking beyond Europe, and and the joining of CPTPP is really one of those examples where. It's something Britain could not have done uh, as a member of the European Union. It would just be incompatible with the sort of obligations in in trade policy and and regulation that you have as an EU member. And um, that was also something which I think is going to show some interesting sort of psychological effects of change of our engagement with the region. Thank you. Um, I think that uh, the TPP discussion and also uh, where the two countries might go on uh, global environmental issues is, a, is for another uh, time, but this, certainly there are so many areas that we have uh, uh, shared interests in that it, it's just 
um, a very rich discussion. Um, so I want to thank you and turn you over to Ariel, who I think has some questions for you. Uh, but uh, I, I really uh, hope we have this again. <laughs> Let me say that before we get to the end. <laughs> Thank you, Susan, for that. Um, hi, it's Ariel. Um, so, yeah, I wanted to go back a little bit to the sort of the role of the UK and the EU and, you know, with regards to Japan and Asia. So, you know, we've talked about, for example, the UK and Japan relations with respect to Asia. So, uh, Dr. Shetler-Jones mentioned, for example, the stance of the UK and Japan at the Munich conference. And now you just mentioned, you know, the interaction with the, you know, the sort of group in Europe with Asia and so in the Pacific and the CPTPP. Um, so I guess this is a question for both of you. Like, do you have... I mean, what, something that is striking, at least from the perspective of Asia and looking now at what is happening in Europe with the war in Ukraine, is that, you know, the status quo has really changed from a geopolitical standpoint. And so I'm wondering, do you have any predictions for, you know, the geostrategic strategic landscape in the Indo-Pacific going forward with regards to, for example, the UK-Japan relations or, you know, the EU-Japan uh, relations with respect to Asia? Uh, Philip, would you like to go first or should I? Oh, thanks, James. You you can go ahead if you like. <laughs> okay. Um, well, it, it's it's very it's very difficult, I would say, to predict how the future will exactly look. Um, and I think the the Russian invasion of Ukraine or reinvasion of Ukraine has taken many by surprise. Um, but I do think that there are. A number of uh, forces or trends that we can certainly identify, um, which would probably suggest that the international environment, whether it's in the Euro-Atlantic or the Indo-Pacific, is going to get um, less uh, predictable in the sense it will become more more volatile and geopolitically contested. So uh, I think that, that this is an onward force that will be made, as I said at the very beginning, worse by the environmental crisis and the ensuing um, struggle potentially for particular resources. Um, and it's become increasingly apparent, I think, in Washington, as it has in London and perhaps also Tokyo and other major capitals, that, um, for example, we are increasingly dependent on specific materials or energy sources for our well-being. And these can no longer be left simply to globalization or the open market um, for us to gain access or to maintain access to them. And I think that there will be a struggle for resources that will ensue um, or gradually build up as we go forward. As geopolitical competition um, in, in, intensifies. So that being said and that being known, I think it's now important for, because of course it's a dynamic situation, so it's not only that, that geopolitical competition or our competitors, whether that's in the form of Russia or China, will, um, will, will, will seek to stake out um, their respective spheres of influence at the international level, because it's also for us um, as leading democracies to to, if not push back, then certainly to try and um, uphold, as we try to, uh, uh, this free and open international order. And to do that, that requires a more active presence on the international stage from both Britain and Japan and other like-minded countries in the form of Australia or the United States in the Indo-Pacific or some countries in, in Europe in the, in the Euro-Atlantic. Um, and, and if we can do that, if we can build the new relationships as are required and strengthen relationships between key stakeholders, um, and also to, uh, to, to, I think, move from 
from a position of upholding the international order to competing um, uh, to, to undercut and undermine our competitors, then it should be possible for us to 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 maintain an international order that is genuinely free and open. But that requires stepping up and and sometimes doing things that might uh, cost quite a, uh, a lot of money and and also invest require a lot of time in terms of investment uh, to, 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 to secure them. And I think that's becoming increasingly uh, apparent in London, and I hope it's also becoming increasingly apparent in other democracies. Um, so we will not succeed unless we are prepared to do more. We will not succeed unless we are prepared to compete. Uh, and we will not do we will not do more achieve our objectives unless we are prepared to work together potentially in new formats um, that that allow us to to secure our strategic and uh, economic objectives. And I think if we can do that, and there's a specifically strong role here, I think, for Britain and Japan being two influential island nations um, on on either flank of Eurasia, central respectively, I think, to the Euro-Atlantic and the Indo-Pacific worlds. Um, then if we can do that, there is, a, uh, I think, a, a very prosperous future ahead of us, despite the fact that we will have to um, o- overcome a number of challenges uh, in the years ahead. If we fail, however, to do that, if we fail to, to compete more, to, to interact more and to engage more, then I think um, it might be the case that we, we are confronted by more uh, incidents like the invasion of Ukraine, um, and, and this will not be constrained to Europe. It will potentially also occur in the Indo-Pacific, and it will be extremely disruptive to, to our interests and, and the kind of international order that we want to see prevail. Yeah, it's really interesting what you said about the energy point as well. Yeah, did you have anything else, uh, Dr. Shetler-Jones? Yes, I mean, actually, the energy uh, theme also gives us a, another very clear example of how how Japan has has played an exceptional role by diverting liquid natural gas to Europe at a time when uh, one of the effects of the conflict was a jump in prices in Europe. And that's really quite an extraordinary uh, strategic gesture, I think. Um, It's not as... Mm. And I think you're having um, some electricity issues in Tokyo at the moment. So it's not something that comes uh, without some sense of sacrifice from the Japanese side. And I, I don't think that Perhaps that's got the recognition it, it deserved. But stepping back, I think um, what what's happened uh, as a result of the Russia crisis has revealed some very uh, important um, things already. There, there is obviously uh, a camp that's firmly against the actions of Russia, um, and Japan moved quite fast into that camp. But also, as I mentioned, Singapore, which normally has has tried to keep a more um, neutral, non-aligned position on on topics of this sort of sensitivity has taken a principal position and, and the only ASEAN member to join the sanctions. And then you have Australia, New Zealand. Um, but then I think we also have to recognise how many countries are um, sympathetic to Russia uh, and and how the narrative that China has taken with, uh, about Russia's legitimate interests and siding with Russia and, and refusing to condemn its transgression of international law, uh, and, and and really even contrary to what what China has liked to present about itself as a country that stands up for self determination and sovereignty, um, you know, a great cost I think to its 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 credibility of, of the narrative. 
But then I think there's a there's a third group um, who are wavering and are unsure really what position to take or if you need to take a position on these questions. And I think what we're missing there, as James said, is a kind of new framework or a um, new format because um, w- w- the response has been much more global than people expected. It's gone way beyond Europe, but it's also been quite ad hoc. There hasn't been uh, a meeting of uh, the G7 or, or the group of countries around the world who have um, responded in, in, in like manner to this. Uh, and we don't have anything like a strategy or a, a theory of victory about how we we prevail in our interests in, in terms of what Russia is doing, but also in terms of a wider question, which is, what does our response to Russia say about how we would respond to a similar action uh, against Taiwan, for example, um, that would that would break the peace in Asia and 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 cause probably even greater uh, disruptions and, and disturbances in the region? Uh, and we're lacking that, I think. And if you if you compare it to the situation in the 1940s, even while we were in the relatively early stages of, of World War II, we were writing the Atlantic Charter. We were already mapping out the principles that became the, the essence of the United Nations and the United Nations system uh, that, that has really been the main reference point for governing the world since, since then. So we are, we are in the midst of a, of a crisis, but we are not yet um, crystallizing a kind of joint approach or, or strategy or plan. So I think that's where we need to start thinking next. And as I say, I think that's something where countries like Japan and the UK uh, are, are in a, the right position to take a strong position on that, um, because people don't any longer expect this to be just led by one country. Uh, and even people, a lot of people in the United States don't think any longer that um, their country should be taking this kind of role as it had in the past. So I think it does fall to us uh, because when you think about it and you look around, who else would do it? Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I have one follow-up to that. Um, that's an excellent topic, one that concerns all of us, I think, and that uh, some of us have been thinking about. Uh, and uh, uh, if, you, if you or your colleagues write about it, uh, will you share that with us? Can we get a dialogue going on it is what I'd really like to say. Yeah, so. we'd be delighted to follow up on that. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, yeah, my question is uh, a little bit following up on that, because as you mentioned, it would be great to see uh, Japan and the UK and other countries taking a leading role in deciding, you know, from a strategic point of view, what to do next, how we can deal with crises like these in the future. Um, so, you know, sort of picking back like going after that like you know you would like to see more strategic role from for japan going forward like are there like is this like you know is this what you are saying or like do you would you like like to see what what do you think japan's role should be going forward essentially is what i'm asking i guess with especially with this uh with the conflict in ukraine in mind yeah i think yeah you know, japan has already taken the right course but i suppose to uh it could articulate its its position and also its willingness to take this role, not just in a response to a crisis, but in the longer term. Uh, and maybe we do need to put this on a more structured basis and take an entrepreneurial sort of approach to it. Uh, but I think equally, 
you could say the same of, of Britain. I think we should we should be doing the same thing with Japan and with with others, because these things don't happen by accident. Somebody has to just take the initiative. And and I think given all the points that we've we've discussed about um, our common interests and our common perspectives, I think that. Uh, Japan and the UK is certainly a good partnership to do that, but I think we have to sort of grasp it, um, and and that just me is a question of leadership, really. And and I uh, I'm interested to see um, in the case of Japan. I think some people saw uh, Prime Minister Kishida as as um, somebody who'd had quite a low key sort of uh, modest uh, voice in his career up till recently, but. Um, Perhaps they've been surprised that he he's he's led such a strong response internationally. But perhaps he's done it in a rather modest way, and and it could uh, benefit from benefit all of us from from being put in a more explicit way, uh, where we really um, claim the responsibility. And and the same for the UK. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I agree with your point that um, you know, for example, Japan struggling with energy right now. It's uh, something that uh, uh, it's really showing the potential struggles that other countries will have in the future as well. So uh, it'll be interesting to follow this and see how it goes forward. Um, I'll pass back the baton to Galileo. I think we'll probably wrap this conversation up. Uh, thank you so much for your responses. Yes, so we're just coming up to an hour now of our scheduled time. I just want to say thank you, um, James and Dr. Philip, for your time and speaking with us today. We enjoy the insights on the information and technology sharing, joint development between the free nations, and outlining and raising awareness of geopolitical issues that may affect UK-Japan relations and with their respective regions. Um, Before we wrap up, do you have any announcements or anything you'd like to share to our listeners? Um, I, I, thank you very much for, for hosting this and, and thank you for all your excellent questions and, and, and all the kind words that have gone over the last, um, of the last hour. I'm very grateful that you've um, invited us to do this and, 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 and I've very, very, very thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, even though it's very early in the morning for me, but it was very, <laughs> sorry very, about that. Not at all, not at all. It was a very great, um, a very interesting conversation. Um, all I would say is, um, stand by. We will be publishing some more papers in the upcoming weeks. I'm not sure they'll be entirely focused on the Euro, um, on the Indo-Pacific. Um, at least initially, we've got one that will be published next week, looking at global Britain and the Black Sea region. Now, that might not strike you as being particularly Indo-Pacific focused, but I think the argument that we're trying to make there is that the um, Black Sea region and the Eastern Mediterranean um, are intrinsically connected to one another, and they're also, in some ways, if not equidistant between the Euro-Atlantic and the Indo-Pacific, and certainly um, in between both theatres. And therefore, they need to be, or this region, the Black Sea region, the the Eastern Mediterranean, need to be taken on board um, if any country is thinking of, um, in Europe at least, of of having an Indo-Pacific focus. And likewise, I think also they need to be taken on board for those in the um, Indo-Pacific that that see that there are connectivities with the Euro-Atlantic. So that's one paper that we'll be publishing next week. And of course, that's animated by the Russian, uh, renewed Russian invasion of of Ukraine. Um, Moving forward, we're going to be publishing in the um, upcoming months. I'm not quite sure when, because it's not the optimal time because of the Russian action in Ukraine. 
a paper looking at um, Britain's maritime uh, global maritime focus, and I think that will have a much greater um, uh, kind of connection to the Indo-Pacific. We were intending to launch that paper um, to 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 celebrate of our um, one year anniversary, uh, but. Because of the Russian action in Ukraine, we decided not to. It wasn't the optimal time, but we will be launching that, I think, in the upcoming um, months as well. Okay, I'll keep an I'll keep an eye out for that. How about yourself, Dr. Philip? Any announcements or anything you'd like to share? Thank you. Well, I'll be um, coming to Japan soon. I hope. Wow. Uh, okay. Because I, I think it goes back to what we said about you know the UK after Brexit and Europe and so on. Um, it is not an exclusive uh, choice for Britain to do Indo-Pacific or Europe. Uh, clearly, Britain is doing both. And I'm involved in some work on European security cooperation with Asia, uh, the SEWA project, uh, security cooperation in and with Asia. And so coming to Japan to talk uh, with, with people about what's what can be done there potentially. And at the same time, uh, doing some work on a project with Chatham House on transatlantic cooperation on Indo-Pacific policy. So uh, as the transatlantic community comes together more on issues like the Trade and Technology Council and uh, governance of digital economy and, and other areas uh, aimed at a common approach to the Indo-Pacific, coming more to Japan and other countries in the region to understand how that sort of cooperation will be received and, and what aspects are welcome and what aspects might raise concerns and, and how the region could respond to um, stronger transatlantic cooperation. So those are the two main things, but um, I'm very interested also to to do something. Um, I'm, I'm publishing a, a chapter in a book coming out this year about the UK-Japan alliance. It was called From Matsu mm -hmm. Brexit. And uh, that will probably be published in June. And so uh, probably be doing some activities around that, which are very specific to the UK-Japan relationship in defense. And so, yes, I want to sort of convene a, a community on that in London and in Tokyo to, to put that on a more settled basis as well. Something I meant to do that was uh, oxide by COVID, but now it's time to, to go back to that, I think. So well, yes. definitely keep us in, informed about that so that we can be part of that. Yes, and if you're in Tokyo, please let us know. I think we'd love to make time to meet and to, yeah, to meet in person. Okay, so um, to our listeners, thank you for joining us. Please read Council on Geopolitical. Um, <laughs> sorry, please read um, Council Geo Strategies content on Japan for. Um, you can search for it and um, their published articles will um, will come up. But you can also visit their website at www.geostrategy.org.uk for more information. And listeners and followers, thank you for joining us today. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. We also have a YouTube channel and this Twitter spaces will be distributed on Spotify and Apple Music. Make sure you subscribe to that as well. So we will do this again next week and keep an eye out on Twitter for the announcement. Thank you, everyone, for your time. Thank you for listening to The Real Issues, Real Voices, Real Japan podcast by Japan Forward. Visit our website for more information regarding our podcast and other news on Japan. Catch you next time.